Scott Sion, and welcome to Comfort Zone Exit. I am happy to be joined by Patrick McKnight, who was my guest on Comfort Zone Exit number five. A little over five months ago, back in December, Patrick sat down with me to discuss his preparations for his ascent and uh, attempt to climb Mount Everest this spring, and as, uh, as a man of his word, he has agreed to sit back down and uh, regale us with the tales and the stories and uh, the anecdotes of what he may have learned while over there, because um, as anyone who may have uh, seen CNN or any major news outlet over the last month knew that this climbing season in Nepal while climbing Mount Everest was anything but normal. So, um, Patrick, welcome back. You've been home for six days. Yeah, thanks, Scott. Thanks for coming. Yeah, no. Really appreciate it. Thank you. It's uh, it's great to be sitting here. So, um, I, I guess I'll, I, I have to preface our conversation um, by stating that uh, 16 human lives were lost on, on Mount Everest. Uh, this spring in, in the Kumbu Icefall, uh, and all the lives that were lost, and, and please correct me if I go wrong anywhere, because, uh, you know, in terms of what happened, but all the lives that were lost were those of Sherpas, who were uh, native, uh, native to Nepal, who their jobs and their livelihood is to uh, shepherd and to prepare the mountain, mostly for, uh, for Westerners and outsiders to come and climb the mountain. And if it, oftentimes, if it weren't for their efforts getting the mountain ready, people would not be able to climb the mountain. Uh, so at no point in this conversation do I want that to be lost, um, because uh, that's ultimately what led to the mountain being, I guess, closed, if you will. Whether or not it was ultimately officially closed, we'll get, late, get to later. Um, but... That being said, when we did our first interview in December, there were a number of things that were discussed about um, what you were doing to mitigate risks while climbing the mountain and, the, and how you were going to be climbing the mountain. And you had said that you were going to be climbing from the north side in Tibet. And yep. one, of, one of the reasons, maybe not primary reason, but one of the reasons was because of the dangers of the Kumbu Icefall and not having to go through it every time you left base camp to go to a higher camp. And ultimately, the tragedy that, that killed the Sherpas took place there. So, <laughs> all of those things being taken into account, I guess my first question, and, and I'm going to ask you a lot of things about the trip, but I want to know, first, you prepared to climb from the north side. How did you end up in Nepal <laughs> when you were expecting to be in Tibet? Well, about a week before I was supposed to depart, <clears throat> I got a phone call from Dan Mazur. And uh, Dan sort of frantically talked to me. Dan, uh, you're, you're expedition leader. Yeah, correct? he's a expedition yep. leader for Summit yep. Climb. And he, he sort of seemed frantic, and he said to me, hey, we're having a really hard time getting a permit and a visa for the north side for you. And so I thought, well, okay, that's, uh, I, I guess, you know, let's press on and let's see if we can get it. And he said, no, no, I, I, think, <clears throat> I think the climbing season for you is over on the north side. There's no way that we're going to get a visa. Um, so I thought that that was kind of odd. Uh, not... 
not that I doubted it. It's just the, the Chinese act in all sorts of weird ways. Uh, they just they issue certain decrees and that's it. So there were no Americans other than a few, um, probably expedition leaders, but no uh, paying client climbers on the north side this year that were Americans. Oh, so was that a was that political that they weren't being issued to Americans, or what was the we have what was no the mitigating idea. what was the factor there? Because I was I was going to inject that I know as of uh, about three hours ago when I last checked my internet connection, Dan has a team on the north side that is waiting for the weather to clear so they can summit the mountain. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. And so Dan has an American as an expedition leader. But no Americans on the team. Uh, yeah, so okay. they're they're all uh, uh, one one. Uh, let's see, I, I they're all from Europe. Uh, one Australian and yeah, and it's it's a shame. Yeah. Uh, there were let's see, one two three three. I think uh, maybe four of us. Four of us that were on the south side that got shifted from the north side to the south. Okay. So Dan Dan was kind enough to allow us to shift over and continue to climb. Uh, my dad uh, called me and he said, boy, you know, things change in the last moment. That's not a good sign. Uh, and how, how accurate he was about that. But... So it came down to the Chinese just not allowing us to get a visa. Yeah. And as as long as the Chinese control the north side in Tibet, they dictate who climbs. Yeah. So that was a week before I left. Not a whole lot changes for for me because I was already prepared. I was ready to climb. Right. It's not like the mountains any taller from the other side yeah so, yeah you know, it's just different yeah. though and and i was preparing to be acclimatized to base camp on the north side which is higher than base camp yeah. on the south side and i was just prepared to sit in a jeep and and uh have the approach pass me yeah. by as uh, as i was passively yeah. acclimatizing sitting there and read and uh, I, I listened to our first podcast this afternoon, and I know one of the reasons you said you were looking forward to the north side so much as well is that you, when you climb and when you go out on adventures, you prefer to be alone, and you were looking forward to the fact that it would be less crowded than, yeah. than the south side inevitably would end up being. Yeah, and we never got to see what the south side was as far as <laughs> crowds are concerned. Uh, base camp was already thinning out by the time we were getting there. Uh, and it was early. So we, we never got an opportunity to see any crowds. Yeah. So um, so take us through the, when, when, you get, when you get into Nepal. Mm -hmm. everything's, everything's normal, you get to Kathmandu. Yeah. Um, you know, give, give, give us a brief, a brief overview of, you know, getting to Kathmandu, you know, maybe juggling through some political permitting processes and then and then the, uh, you know, the expedition just to get the base camp. And then, uh, you know, ultimately we'll get up to, um, you know, where you were on April 18th when, when the avalanche occurred and how news about that started to spread. Yeah, yeah. So 
Landing in Kathmandu, it is a long trip from the U.S. It's 20 hours of flying time. Wow. So it's it's a long trip. I get there and I'm pretty tired. And, and it's a lot warmer than it was here. So I think I landed, it was about 80 degrees Fahrenheit. And I think I left here and it was maybe 40. So fortunately, I, I'm pretty comfortable in shorts and flip-flops and a t-shirt in 40 degrees. But at 80 degrees, it was just hot <laughs> for me. So we got there, and it was crazy. It was so loud, and it was so congested and frenetic. Traffic was insane. I had been to crazy places in Italy where, like in Naples, where uh, kids on mopeds zip in and out, and yeah. cars... Cars seem to ignore every single street sign and zip around. I would say Kathmandu um, uh, was was crazier than the craziest situation I've ever seen in driving. <laughs> they make the worst drivers here look like stellar drivers. Um, so it was it was really frenetic, and I was and I was still I was pretty tired, so it was difficult for me to process a whole lot. I got to Kathmandu and uh, got to the hotel. Put all my I, I met I met one of the Northside climbers, uh, Arnie, and uh, he's from he's from Denmark. And um, he and I got to chatting, and we, we eventually roomed together uh, in in the hotel. So we went about, walked around, just checked out things. Then we went out to dinner. And immediately got separated <laughs> because you hit an intersection, and if you get separated, you could be standing in that intersection for ten or fifteen minutes because there's that a it's crowded nuts. Just, yeah, you it's turn around just, and somebody you're next to is just vanished. It's just vanished. But the the cool thing I noticed when I was there immediately was there are horns being honked all all the time, but nobody's ever angry. You know here. <laughs> People blow their horns and 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 they lose their cool. There, people just blow their horns and they're smiling at each other and they probably get into an accident and they get out and shake each other's hand and smile and things were good. (laughs) So it was really nice getting there because I I felt like it was step one in my entire expedition where I felt I felt like okay I'm here I got all my I got all my climbing gear. You know, when you when you get your duffels and, and you have your pack and all of your stuff, you get this sense of relief, or at least I do when I when I get to my destination. Yeah. So I had everything that I needed. And uh and then we just kinda hung out and we did gear sorts multiple days and we had meetings and we talked about, you know, what the logistics were gonna be like and and then last second things that we may need. Uh, and I had gone over as we had talked about, I'm sort of a checklist person, so I had checklists upon checklists, and I didn't really need anything when I was yeah. there. Um, but that didn't stop me. I went and I got some extra candy and things like that that I, I thought would be nice for the trek in and, and for base camp. And then we took off, and taking off from Kathmandu, so this I, was, I think I was there for a total of three days. And it was relatively uneventful. My main focus was don't get sick. Right. So um, the pollution there is horrible. Uh, 
if it's not raining, then you can't see anything because the the air pollution is nasty. Apparently, I guess they have these um, uh, these uh, clay pits that sit uh, down uh, upwind. Is that right? No. Uh, yeah, upwind. Upwind um, from yeah, the city. From the city, and all of the uh, all of the soot that gets kicked up from these from these stoves, yep. then gets carried in over to the city, and then it just sits there like an inversion layer. Oh. It was really not yeah. nice. Wow. And you know it's not nice when all of the locals are walking around with those masks on. Yeah. You know those N95 <laughs> masks or whatever yep. those are. Yeah, and you think <laughs> immediately. Wait a second. I'm an outsider. Why are they all wearing masks? <laughs> so the first thing is that most of us took our, um, we have, um, uh, oh my goodness, um, part of the problem with jet lag is I can't remember anything. Uh, you had something to cover your face. You yeah, I got something to cover. Yeah, it's, like um, I'll remember it as soon as, uh, um, but, you see all these climbers walking around now uh, with with things covering their faces, whereas before, when they first get there, they're not covering their faces at all. So after three days, we were all done. We were ready to get out of there. And getting out of there is quite an adventure because getting out of there isn't just getting into a car and driving off into the, into the valley. You have to fly from Kathmandu to Lukla. Okay. Flying is um, in the local aircraft, uh, the local terminals, is a, is a zoo. It's <laughs> I think a zoo is more organized. <laughs> it is outrageous. There are there are gates, I guess, <laughs> and there is security. But the security, you can kind of pick and choose what you want to go through the the X ray machine. Yeah. So you can walk on to the plane with just about anything. I'm sure that there are people who yeah. walk on with chickens and livestock and yeah. all of that. But we just got herded through, and and it was really disorganized. It wasn't just disorganized from our group standpoint. It was just chaotic. There was a mass of humanity in there, all with with uh, expedition bags, you know, these yeah. expedition duffels, and with backpacks and with all that, and we're all rushing to these different gates. So we, we get there, and we're just handed a boarding pass. And the boarding pass has no information on it. It, doesn't, it tells us what the flight airline company is. Yeah. But you have no idea what the flight is. I think these things are probably recycled or whatever. So we just look up at this, at this monitor once we get in, and we realize that our flight was supposed to have taken off five minutes ago. So then we rush to this one door, and the guy says, yeah, come on, come on, we got to get going. And we hop on this bus, and we're shuttled out to this little plane that's probably, uh, it's a twin otter, it's probably uh, uh, maybe 20-seat plane. And they, they pile us on, and they get all of our duffels in there, which is great, because yeah. now... We know we've got all of our gear, yeah, and we've got... seen it loaded. Yeah, Wait, but... How, how long of a flight is this you're preparing for? Mm, half an hour. Okay. You know, it's, yeah. it's a, this is a short flight. It's, yeah. You take off, and it's pe picturesque, and once you get out of 
once you get away from Kathmandu, the the smog clears and then you can yeah. see around and boy, you can see seven thousand meter peaks right away. Wow. In the foothills. <laughs> the quote foothills of yeah. the Himalaya. But it's amazing. So we get there and we, we land in Lukla, which is a, an event in and of itself. Uh, the Lukla airport is a is a um, is a runway that's just slapped onto the side of a hill. And and I, I would say that it's probably fifteen to twenty degrees slope. So when you land the the runway is going uphill <laughs> and then it's going uphill and then and then there's a definitive end to it. <laughs> which is yeah. more hill. More and more mountain. Yeah. And uh, and so we landed and it was it was relatively uneventful, but yet eventful. <laughs> you know, where everyone you was excited. By their, by their standards, it was probably a very normal flight. Everything. Oh was, yeah, went yeah, yeah. As, as planned. As yeah, well. but yeah. you know, as you get there, you see off to the side, and there's a crashed plane and parts all laying around, and helicopters <laughs> landing at the same time. Yeah. It's it, it's 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 Nepal. It's yeah. just nuts. So once we got there, Lukla was was a cool town from our perspective because we got we got out of Kathmandu. You know, we felt like okay, now we're on the beginning of our approach. Yeah, Kathmandu was just a it was just like a, a holding spot for us to do our gear sorts and make sure that we have everything. But Lukla was the start of our expedition. So once we got there, we we made sure that we pulled out things from our from our duffels that we would need for our trek because for the next five days we would be to say we're, we would be without our duffels is probably an overstatement, but there was no guarantee that we would have our duffels. Okay, so and what was going to be going on for the next five days? Was that going to be your hike? Yeah, to base our trek to base camp. Okay. Yeah, and it's just very straightforward trek. You just go from little town to little town you stay in tea houses and if you're not staying inside the tea house you're eating your meals inside the tea house and sleeping in tents outside which uh which i actually preferred i would prefer to sleep in a tent it's uh it, believe it or not it's warmer <laughs> <laughs> and and it's you know it's more i guess it, it has the creature comforts that we're accustomed to it's more of your own controlled environment yeah definitely <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. And the other thing is I've got all these allergies, and when I'm in these tea houses, they're all moldy, and it's tough to sleep. Yeah. It's tough to sleep. Not to mention the fact that there are trekkers going up the hill at the same time we are, and the trekkers are partying and staying up till all hours and, and leaving at all hours, so they, they're, not always, they're not always sleeping. Yeah. Um, so the paper-thin walls... Amplify yeah. every single movement that you hear. <laughs> so it was. So we just went from town to town. It took us five days to get to base camp, and and that was April eighteenth. So we. That's when you were you arrived in base camp April eighteenth. Yeah, okay. at about it was about the afternoon. I'd say at one o'clock, two o'clock in the afternoon when we got into base camp, and getting into base camp. We knew something weird had happened. We had heard 
in the town just before going into base camp, Fort Shep, that there was an avalanche. So we heard that, and that there was a possibility that people were caught in it. So we thought, oh, okay. Well, we don't hear anything else. Right. Then when we get to the outside, there's this kind of unofficial beginning to base camp, which is a pile of stones. <laughs> Everything's a pile of stones there. So um, we get to the beginning, and there's a trekker that's coming back and saying, oh, there's been a terrible tragedy. There's Sherpa and, and climbers have been killed in this avalanche. And the guy says, yeah, and there could have been up to 100 climbers in it. So that's what we heard. Yeah, so that's, yeah. That was the beginning of it. Well, the the entryway into base camp is still about a half an hour away from our camp. So because we have to keep hiking up through base camp. Yeah. And base camp is huge. Okay. It's uh I, I would say it's probably end to end it's probably a mile. Wow. Okay. Yeah. But it's a mile of uh ice and rock yeah. and and well, what's the elevation at base camp? It's uh, about seventeen five. Yeah. So how I just how are you feeling when you get there? Oh, I felt great. You felt fine. Yeah. You felt great. I mean. Yeah, I felt great. I good. I had zero effect from the altitude at wow. any time. Yeah. Yeah. Good. Like I said, you know, you were, we were talking about. I I had prepared so well for altitude that I knew that that was not going to be the issue. Yep. My my biggest concern was getting sick on the track, yeah, and uh, and also that I was battling this sinus infection from November, and it never really went away. All right, so so you get into base camp the the day or just matter of hours after the avalanche occurred, and you 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 told us about the first things you heard. So what? Um, I mean, what, what transpired next? And by next, I guess I mean over the next course of the next few days, because I imagine things were trying to get sorted out. People were fact finding. Nobody, maybe nobody knew really what was going on. So try to take us through what some of those first couple of days after the accident were like, and what was what was happening. Well, the days each day was really quite unique. Um, our first day. Well, our first evening when we were there, we knew that there was this was really bad. This was bad. We were we were situated right next to a helicopter pad. So base camp has three helipads. Uh one really far up by the ice fall, one in the center, and then one right by the entryway. And we were at the middle helipad. And we could see they were long lining bodies out of the Fall. And that's, you know, that's just not a sight that's, that's, you want to see. And the other thing is, we really had no idea the extent of the, uh, the fatalities, any of the injuries. We knew nothing. But yet we had all of this misinformation, you know, in retrospect, it's misinformation in our heads. So we were wondering what was going on. And most of us, or a good number of us, knew people there. 
So what we were doing is we were trying to fan out and and account for see yeah. what we could yeah. find out. But as soon as night fell, we we were all pretty tired, and we decided we'd be better off if we all got a good night's rest, let the situation settle down a bit, and then get up in the morning and then go out and see what we can find out. And that's precisely what we did. But I'll tell you, that was a that was a restless night because I had no idea. A friend of mine uh, was climbing with Alpine Ascents, and I know uh, that John got there at least five days before we did. Yeah. And my reckoning was it was at least five days and I was thinking more like seven to ten days because he had he had left oh ten days before I had left here so I was thinking that if if their acclimatization schedule was on he should have his team should have been going up into the ice ball by that time yeah and uh, it's just by luck that they didn't as it turned out so so John was the one that I really wanted to find and I knew that Alpine Ascents was about two or three camps higher up the hill than we were so so in the morning after eating breakfast and talking as a team we decided to fan out and we did many of us went to those locations of people that we knew and we just decided we were going to grab as much intel as we could so I walked up and and <clears throat> During my meander, I'm walking up and I, I, I get into Alpine Ascents and I'm, as I'm walking into camp, I look over and I say, "Hey, is this uh, Alpine Ascents?" And uh, this guy walks up to me and he pulls, pulls off his buff, and, oh, okay. and he throws his arms up and it's John. Yeah. I could not believe <laughs> the first it. First person you saw. First person I saw. I was so happy. John is a, just a great guy. Just and and he's smiling and he's so upbeat and and it was great. It was great to see him and and to to say that I I I got I got rid of this huge wave of worry is is an understatement. It's just like the weight of the world just was is gone. I was happy that the people that that I knew were okay. Yeah. Um you know, and I think that's all of us. We were all concerned about the people that we knew. And uh, and it didn't matter whether you were a Westerner or whether you were a Sherpa. Everybody had that same sense yeah. and the same dread that there's a possibility that one of one somebody that we knew was there. So um, after connecting with John, John then told us that uh, about the situation uh, because Alpine Ascents lost the they had the greatest loss oh it was they, his team that okay yeah their team was going up they lost five Sherpa um, and and it was a, it was a devastating blow to them I mean obviously yeah. it was a devastating blow to the entire climbing community but but it's it's one thing to be uh, the community, and it's another to be your expedition. Yeah, I mean, uh, obviously, when you when you know it's your expedition, you know the people, so there's the emotional connection. You've already gotten you established a connection with these people. You're going to be trusting to lead you up the mountain. Uh, but then there's then there's also the feeling you you probably pretty much know your 
you're packing your bags and your trip your trip's over. Oh yeah. Maybe not, I'm not speaking about you specifically, but if you're on a team that lost five people, you're you're going home now. Yep. Yep, and that's what the lead of uh, Alpine Ascent said. Uh, yep. The expedition leader and the owner of, of Alpine Ascent said, you know, their, their Sirdar knew every single one of these guys, knew their families, knew all of this. There's no way that he could have stepped in. And there was one missing body. And the one missing body that they couldn't retrieve is from Alpine Ascent. And so that would mean that when they go into the icefall, they would be going by his body and that yeah. just wasn't that that's just not a that's not a situation that that would lead anyone to continue climbing so right. alpine ascents their expedition even though it wasn't officially over we all knew that it was not happening for them and john knew it too yeah uh john said that informally, their Sherpa got together and said, "We can't climb. We're done." Yeah. And I, I get it. Yeah, I completely get it. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so after chatting with John, um, I left, and I had that sense. I, I I felt really bad for John, and to give you the, the reason why is that in 2012, uh, John was with the Himex, uh, uh, the Himalaya Expeditions. Uh, group um, run by uh, Russell Bryce, and okay. they lost a Sherpa in 2012, and they and Russell Bryce decided to to cancel the climb. So he's been on two expeditions, and both times the climb has been canceled. Wow. Um, I don't think people have an appreciation for that. There are really really wealthy people who climb. Yeah, but. I didn't meet any of them. Right. I met uh, middle-class Americans that spent 10 years saving to climb and lost everything. Yeah. But their lives, they left alive. Yeah. Um, most of them won't be able to climb again. Right. This is a one-shot deal for some of them. Yeah. You know, uh... You know, it's this is a tragedy. It's a tragedy of, and I'm and I'm going to go into a little bit more of what the real tragedy is. Yeah. Uh, it's not about money. That's what it's turned into. But the real tragedy is, is first the true tragedy is that there were that there were sixteen lives lost. Absolutely. That's the true. That's that's in. In the real scheme of things, the the tragedy is a loss. But the social tragedy is that a minority of Sherpa turned that tragedy into an even worse tragedy. Okay. They yeah. decided not to mourn, but instead to turn it into a political battle. This was a political opportunity for them to gain money from an incredibly corrupt government. The, the government is ridiculously corrupt. You know, we joke about corruption in the U.S. Right. And, and our corruption pales in comparison <laughs> to, to even the daily activity. <laughs> Everybody is on the take. Yeah. And, and that's, we, we'll talk about this more, yeah. but, but that's really what, what happened is uh, 
it's true that there there was a loss, but the loss was never mourned, and that I think is the real wow. tragedy. Yeah. So I. I read, and these are things that Westerners were, were reading, and I was following media outlets, I was following some Twitter feeds of folks that you were climbing with and some blogs, um, and within the first couple of days, um, I read about threats being made on the lives of Sherpas who were who said that they were going to stay and honor their commitments to their teams and, and climb. Um, some outlets said, you know, Reaction that I, I could understand as a um, is an American and even as an athlete, you know, a lot of times in, in American sports, you hear about a, a teammate dying or some or some linebacker. Brett Favre's father died that afternoon that Monday night game, and he went out and played that night because he said that's what my dad would have wanted me to do, right? Yeah, so, yeah. so you know, I read about some of the Sherpa were saying we will climb one because. This is our livelihood, but two, the people who died would have wanted us to climb. Yeah. And then there were other other outlets saying, and the more of the outlets I read said, the Sherpa as a general community were so emotionally devastated at the losses that they couldn't physically put a foot in front of the other, and they all unanimously just said, it's over. <laughs> the truth is always somewhere in between. The truth is between, yeah. But, yeah. Uh, so... Ninety percent of the Sherpa that we had we had talked to a tremendous number of right. people, the, even the icefall doctors all said we want to climb. Yeah. Why is that? So it goes back to you know the preface that you you started with, which was which was a good one, that we really shouldn't forget about the fact that seventeen people died, and the the seventeen people that died are Sherpa, and the Sherpa set up the mountain. Now. That isn't historically true. That's just recently. With these expeditions, because the expeditions have become so numerous, what what's happened is the the Nepali government has has now mandated the the expedition teams to pay into a general fund to fix lines over uh, throughout the mountain. Okay. And so it's actually the Nepali government that has mandated this, not the climbers. And I'm sure it's the <laughs> Nepali government collecting the money. Oh, they and collect the money, and then they... They make a 99% profit on it and pay the Sherpa their normal wage to do it. Yeah, yeah. Now, the now the Sherpa don't don't pay an expedition yeah. fee. Right. Yeah. Um, they, they also don't get many benefits. I... I, I have... Some other probably uh, choice commentary about about how the Sherpa are treated, um, and I can talk about that now or later. So you, you were getting you were getting ready to elaborate about um, you know what you felt the 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 true feelings of the Sherpa were, and, and, and you said the way that that you saw them being treated at times maybe by I don't know if it was by people actually on their teams or by. Uh, guides or even by government officials who I understand uh, had been deployed with expeditions to to be um, I don't know if it was to be security or to be official representatives of the government at, at base camp um, so if you can elaborate on that and then eventually I want to I want to hear about um, you know how the dissemination and the ex 
uh, uh, and the leaving of the, of the teams started happening as teams started yeah. leaving and and as I followed the blogs um, it, it became very apparent and clear to me that your team was the most resilient of all of them in terms of we were the last that that were and I, I want to hear why you stayed that long what led to it and uh but but it was clear to me and i i could even gather from all you know other side of the globe that you guys were were holding out and you were being very patient and trying to stay away out of the fray as much as you could oh yeah yeah so. very much so so um so i want to i want to offer a little bit of a transgression here to or and a diversion to um to talk about the sherpa because i i really think the sherpa have are mischaracterized in many ways mm -hmm. the um, my experience uh, I'm I'm 48 years old uh, not quite but I will be uh, in July and I was born in the 60s but I'm I wasn't cognizant in the 60s and and I wasn't around <laughs> a lot of people weren't cognizant in the yeah 60s. that's true that's true and, and, and certainly I understand yeah and certainly I was not I was not aware of segregation in the U.S. at all, because it was that was past my time when I, you know, became uh, a sentient being. Um, but I really got the sense that the Sherpa were were treated as as if uh, they were beneath most of the people. I mean, even in Nepali treated the Sherpa poorly. Uh, in b and beneath most of the people, uh, who are most of the people, even the expeditioners? Or yeah, and I got a little bit of that sense from some people on expeditions, like that they, that the Sherpa were there to, to, to serve them. Right. And that just, I don't, that, that never sat well with me. And, and and uh, and in fact, there's there there really is segregation in expeditions. The Sherpa, the climbing Sherpas, were serving us food. That just seemed wrong. I would just, I would get up and I would serve myself. Right. But they didn't like that. They they. I don't know. It made them uncomfortable. <clears throat> right. I don't know for whatever reason. <clears throat> and I just told them, well, why don't you guys sit down? And, and eat with us. And they say, no, 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 we, we eat in other tent. Hmm. Yeah. So it's, uh, and they don't eat the same food, and it's partly because they don't particularly like the food that we eat, and we don't particularly like the food that we eat. <laughs> <laughs> I, I prefer the Sherpa food. I mean, they eat dalbat, which is you know, just lentils and, and rice and, and some chicken, and, and it always looked good. Yeah. And oftentimes looked a lot better than what we were eating. <laughs> but it was that, so it's that kind of separate and unequal, even on the expeditions, that I think creates a distance between the Sherpa and the climbers. And unnecessarily so. Yeah. You know, next year when I go, I'm I definitely plan to plan my own expedition I, that was it's just not something that I'm comfortable with about working with 
other people's organization sure. and all that. And, and I definitely want to have Sherpa where we all sit down and we eat together. Wow. Next year, two big words. Good for you. Well, oh, yeah. We'll talk about that. Yeah, later yeah, later definitely. Too. Wow. <laughs> very cool. Well, very good. Yeah. So that concludes part one of our two-part podcast interview with Patrick McKnight. Please check back in two weeks for part two as Patrick will tell us about the remainder and conclusion of his trip to Mount Everest. If you would like to follow the podcast on Twitter, you can find it at Comfort Zone Exit. You can also find the website comfortzoneexit.com to read Patrick's blog and find out more information about his training that led up to going to Mount Everest. You can find him online. The website is climbingonpurpose.com. That's climbingonpurpose.com. And you can also follow Patrick on Twitter, PEM725. PEM725 is his Twitter handle. Thanks so much, and we'll talk to you again in two weeks.